It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... How researchers are using technology to get more out of the human brain. You try and stimulate the brain using small doses of direct current, alternating current, ultrasound, or even magnetic stimulation. And our guests this week are the co-founders of Public, a startup venture firm hoping to reform government services using technology. Busy public servants have a thousand problems and AI ain't one of them. And they will buy and work with technology that eases their lives and helps them deliver their work. And finally, Elon Musk may be the most prominent advocate of boring technology, but we'll hear about other enterprises popping up around the world who are equally boring. Well, if you could, in the case of the Badger Project, 3D print the exterior of the tunnel using perhaps concrete or something else, that would help. But first... There is widespread concern that technology will eventually supersede man's intelligence. And those who worry about this may be pleased to hear that researchers, mostly military types, are working out how to use technology to get even more out of the human brain. Joining us now on the line to enlighten us about the technology is our technology correspondent, Benjamin Sutherland. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Good to be here. So now, in your article, you describe how the military is essentially co-opting the human brain and nervous system to add new cognitive functions. Tell us about that. One example is uh, a certain brain signal, a brain wave known as the P300, which can actually be detected with uh, electrodes placed on the scalp. And that signal is sent out by the brain when it recognizes something it has been searching for. Crucially, it can be detected with the electrodes well before the person is actually consciously aware of what he or she has actually seen. And this has led a number of military organizations, including DARPA, to fund quite a number of programs to, to develop systems whereby about 10 pictures a second, typically of satellite or drone imagery, often looking for targets or other items of interest, about 10 of these images a second are flashed in front of a geospatial intelligence analyst who is unable to consciously recognize objects in these images at that speed. However, the brain does. By backtracking, those images are reviewed later more closely, and uh, the results are pretty good. They find that, that the brain was able to identify the images where there was something of interest in it. Now, Ben, there's one thing I don't understand here. How is it possible that we can detect a signal of what the person thinks about something 
before there's the actual act of cognition. They're not actually uh, thinking about the object. The P300 signal is actually a fairly primitive signal. It comes from a deeper part of the brain, more of a reptilian or, or limbic system which is reacting to the sight of something of interest or something being sought. Think of a snake seeing a rat uh, when the snake is hungry. Okay. Now, there's other technologies as well where people are trying to get the human brain to do things that it doesn't naturally do or to enhance it. Uh, one of them is called Luke's Binoculars. Tell us about that program. In its current configuration, you have an array of cameras, essentially uh, six of them, set up on a tripod. The, the six cameras are faced out over 360 degrees, and they film the surrounding environment. This could be essentially some sort of a military outpost or military observation point. You have a soldier at that location wearing an electrode cap. The soldier is, is viewing video from these cameras on a, on a laptop or other computer screen. And when something of interest appears, some perhaps movement in the distance or some sort of object that might potentially represent a threat, the P300 fires. All of these uses are very interesting, but I guess most people would wonder, gee, I kind of wish that we were able to apply these technologies to things other than killing other people. How might we take this technology outside of the military and apply it to serving people in other ways? Well, certainly the, there's plenty of work going on that's essentially an extension of, of these systems whereby you try and stimulate the brain using small doses of direct current, alternating current, ultrasound, or even magnetic stimulation to increase the brain's performance, typically known generically as uh, brain stimulation. Small doses of electricity. The military has also been very interested in this, but there have also been civilian researchers working on it with hopes for improving workplace efficiency. Okay, now Ben, let me ask a very frank and sensitive and personal question to you. I thought your article was excellent. Answer me truthfully, did you actually perform transcranial neural simulation on yourself before you wrote your piece? Uh, great question. I actually didn't, but I would have had I had the opportunity. I spoke with enough researchers doing it, and there's even a, a consumer product out which anyone can purchase made by a San Francisco company called Halo Sport which is selling very well, and that's received all the authorizations for general consumer use. It's being used by servicemen, athletes, musicians, all sorts of people who, who want to give their own brain functioning a little boost. That sounds really interesting. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Next, government services. They used to be an area that was the driver of innovation. Think of the post office. Think of the military. But sadly, when we think of most government services, it doesn't seem like innovation is the first word to spring to mind. Luckily, a company is now hoping to change that. Public is a startup venture firm founded by two entrepreneurs. One is Daniel Korski, who is a special advisor to Britain's former prime minister, David Cameron, and he's the CEO. His colleague is Alexander de Carvalho. He's the chief investment officer and also a non-executive director at Heineken. They both join me in the studio now to discuss how technology could transform public services. 
Welcome, Daniel. Hello, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. How big is the public sector as an entity with which to supply services? I mean, the first and easy way to think of it is it's half the economy. But uh, dig a bit deeper. We estimate that uh, the UK alone is a 6.6 billion pound GovTech market. So that is 6.6 billion pounds are spent by the government at local, at central level, in order to uh, transform public services. Now, you've used the term GovTech. I love it. This is, after all, a technology podcast. What is GovTech? GovTech is technology focused on transforming public services. So whether that's traffic management or reducing hospital waiting lists or applying artificial intelligence to CCTV footage to enhance uh, public transport, it's technology dedicated to public service transformation. So shouldn't the public sector be able to do it by itself? Why does it need innovative startups to enter into the fray? It's about a symbiotic relationship. There's absolutely no doubt that the public sector needs to do some of the work themselves. They've got to set the parameters. They've got to decide what the infrastructure looks like. But it's very unlikely that you're going to get the kind of innovation that's required inside the public sector. And we've seen that in other parts of the economy. Great innovation comes from small, nimble, innovative players that can transform things in a way a large organization can. So tell me about some of the really interesting areas in which you are finding startups and cultivating them to serve this GovTech market. We have a business called Ask the Midwife, and it's started by a midwife. So first of all, public sector expertise, who found that largely the touch points between finding out you're pregnant and actually delivering are few and far between. And as a result, expectant mothers show up when they shouldn't, at A&E, or they don't go at all when they should, and both of which it causes enormous drag on the system. So she said, why don't I build an app that allows expectant mothers to communicate with qualified midwives over the internet, and before you know it, you have a way of relieving enormous burden on the NHS. I can give another example. You know, every year, the NHS pays out millions and over a couple of years, billions, because people believe the operations they've gone through have not been the ones that they were promised that they would go through or the consequences haven't really been explained to them. And that's partly because the consent process today is very old school. It's carbon-based, paper-based, and frankly, often non-existent. And as a result, when people go through operations and that have consequences that they didn't expect, they react and they take legal remedies. And the fact that the hospitals and the dental practices can't show that people consented creates a, a huge problem. Now, we're working with one company, Flynotes, that's aiming to digitize that process. Most patients, while they wait for their operation, are practically on their smartphones. Why not develop a much more digitized process so that there's a clear record? But even more importantly, people can really understand what they're about to go through and what the real consequences might be. There was the instance several years ago of an app in Boston that would actually, through its smartphone, when the car bumped and down on a pothole, would indicate to the transport authorities where the potholes were. But of course, the people who would tend to have that app were people who lived in more affluent neighborhoods. And so it was actually detecting how to improve roads for the rich people, not for the poor. One of the companies that we're working with and have um, supported, Calypsa, is looking at ways in which they can plug into existing CCTV footage that cities have everywhere in poor and rich neighborhoods, and through that, see changes in road surface. So here's a, a, a technical innovation that allows you to plug in and, if you will, um, use technology equitably. There was a Swiss mayor who's purchased a different business of ours called Novaville. And when they first went to suggest that their technology would help his, his citizens 
uh, report potholes. He said, there are no potholes in Switzerland. <laughs> Within a week of installing his, um, their application, he was bombarded with requests for fixing roads, and he is now one of their biggest sort of champions. What I like a lot about the CCTV example is that it's data that was collected for one purpose that's simply being reused. So it's a nice little play to leverage the pre-existing infrastructure, data infrastructure. And there's a very important point here as well. Busy public servants have a thousand problems, and AI ain't one of them, you know, and they will buy and work with technology that eases their lives and helps them deliver their work and will very rarely want to go through an extended process where they need to change a whole series of things about themselves in order to get it. The better that you can plug into things and seek radical and transformative change, but in a way that does not feel onerous on the user, the more likely you're going to have of success. So what do you both see as the future of government services? Can you imagine technology taking over functions that the public sector has previously done and the deep state morphing into the shallow state? I think we have to be careful to say that technology is either um, ideologically on the left or ideologically on the right or will seek a large state or a small state. I mean, technology is a means to an end and you can have it do whatever it is that you want. But I do think there's a great potential to free up a front line to deliver much more human interaction. You engage with government at various times in your life, more and less, generally at birth and around death. I think what you'd love is a smoother interaction. And whether government can morph into an, into an entity which provides those services seamlessly in the background, such that, you know, as I buy something on Amazon, so I do register my child for a um, you know, birth certificate. That's the sort of level that we need to strive towards as a step one. Alex, Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally, the Babbage podcast is boring. I am boring. Elon Musk is boring. The serial technology entrepreneur has set up a firm called the Boring Company, to improve the technology used to burrow under the Earth's surface. With it, he intends to drill enough tunnels to alleviate the scourge of traffic by allowing vehicles to run underground instead. But he's not the only one seeking faster and cheaper tunneling. Here to tell us more about some other ventures is Paul Markley, our innovation editor, who is definitely not boring. Hello, Paul. Thank you very much. Why is underground drilling difficult to do? It's a big job for a start. A underground tunneling machine is like a building site on rails. So this thing will be as big as the diameter of the tunnel, which can be anything from seven or in some cases, you know, 13, 14, 15 metres wide. The crossrail tunnels under London, for instance, they cost £1.5 billion to drill, and there's 42 kilometres of those. Now, typically, these big machines move fairly slowly. A metre an hour is a good rate for these things, literally at a snail's pace. So they're slow and they're very expensive. And Mr. Musk thinks he can speed these things up. And so how does he hope to innovate around boring? Firstly, he hopes to make these machines more powerful so that you can basically dig quicker. He's also thinking of, well, if you can dig smaller bore tunnels, you can also do them a lot more cheaply. So instead of building, say, a, a two or four lane motorway under the ground, if you put the car on a sledge, then you can actually send them and pack them down the tube much faster, or indeed using his hyperloop theory of putting people in pods that are sent down magnetically powered tubes. So that's pretty interesting. He's not the only one who is doing interesting tunneling underground. What else is going on? In Europe, there's a group building a machine called the Badger, 
Now, this is a, a robotic device that will actually tunnel underground and it will operate autonomously. And so basically you let this thing go and it tunnels away. Now, it's not building the tunnels as big as Elon Musk is talking about. It's mainly looking at utility tunnels, you know, four metres below ground for gas, water or electricity. But they're enormously important. Now, some of these improvements in boring is simply about taking the tunnel and making it smaller because we're finding creative ways to do what we do with the tunnel with a smaller diameter. What about the technology itself for boring? Well, it's not entirely making it smaller. The boring machines at the moment have to install precast concrete shells as, as they move. And you, you would stop the boring to do that. Well, if you could, in the case of the Badger Project, 3D print the exterior of the tunnel using perhaps concrete or something else, that would help. Uh, the boring company is thinking of using some of the spoil, the actual soil that's being extracted by the cutting head, and turning that into bricks and bricking up the tunnel as well. So there things that could be done for these big tunnels and big boring machines too that could speed up the process. And obviously automating them would make a big difference. The Crossrail machines, which uh, cost about $15 million a pop, have a crew of about a dozen people or more on them and even more above ground operating them. So if you could just automate them, that would take a lot of the operating cost out. Now, I'm intrigued by Mr. Musk's idea about Uh, the Hyperloop and getting people from Manhattan to Washington in 30 minutes rather than the six hours that it would otherwise take. How feasible is that? It's doable. There's lots of technological challenges. Personally, I think one of the first places we might see this technology used is linking Abu Dhabi with Dubai. They can build in a pretty straight line. They've got the money and they like big prestige projects. So I think that's that's where we may see this thing first. I mean, originally there was talk of doing this between Los Angeles and California. Now, personally, I prefer to drive down Route 1 rather than take something that's zipping me through the ground. You're the but only I, one. Yeah, which depends on what car you're in. And... Um, <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> to put a hyperlink down there, which would go above ground, I think is largely now seen as impossible. Whether you could burrow it all the way using some of these new tunneling technologies, well, that does change things. But uh, again, it's an enormous project. Paul, before you go, we all know from past episodes of Babbage that you've been on that you're a car guy. What are you driving these days? 1955 Austin Healey BN1 M spec. That's a Le Mans racing spec. Sounds nice. What color? Black. Beautiful. Thanks a lot for joining us. Pleasure, Ken. As a special note to our listeners, this week we want to offer something a little bit radical. As some of our readers know, The Economist is moving office this week from our iconic building in the center of London by Piccadilly and Mayfair to an office around Embankment. Now, it's not too far away, but there is less space. And what it does mean is that there's the big clean going on at The Economist offices in which decades of books and detritus are being cleared out. Now, sadly, some of our books are ones that we find very prized and we don't want to have to let go of or we found duplicates of and that we are actually now going to offer to listeners. So what I'd like to do is talk about some of the books on my bookshelf now. And if you like the books, what I would encourage you to do is Go on to social media and tell us what you think about the show and then email us about that with the link and tell us which book you would like and then give us your address and we'll post you a copy of the book. So here's what the books are. The first one is by Martin Ford and is called Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. It was an FT Book of the Year award about a couple years ago and it's a really lovely, lovely read. The second one is called Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will by Jeff Colvin. I read this book as well, and I absolutely loved it. 
The third is by Anthony Townsend and is called Smart Cities, Big Data, Civic Hackers, and the Quest for a New Utopia. And it's one of the early and great looks at how data is transforming urban development. The fourth book is called How Google Works by Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg. And I reviewed it for The Economist. It's a lovely book that looks at how companies can exceed by having a mindset of hyper growth. Now, I'd also point out not every company has a billion dollars to play with. So all the lessons don't work perfectly, but some of them do. Another book is by Mark Goodman called Future Crimes, A Journey to the Dark Side of Technology and How to Survive It. I've spoken with Mark and been on stage with him before. He's a great former law enforcement guy who has thought deeply about the future of technology and criminality. Finally, we have two books by Cass Sunstein. One is Republic.com 2.0, and the other one is Hashtag Republic. Cass Sunstein is in some ways perhaps the smartest man in America with a career that has crossed public policy and public service, and everything that he touches intellectually turns to gold. He's really put a lot of hard thinking into how to imagine what digital media does to the future of democracy and public policy and civic discourse. Both of these books need a really good home. So now I've mentioned about eight books, but we have a lot more in the book cupboard. So there's really an almost endless supply. If you do promote us on social media and tell us what you think about the show, email us with your address at radio at economist.com. Tell us what book you'd like. And if that book is not there, tell us the sort of things that you're interested in, and we'll probably find a book that does match your interest, and we'll ship it to you. Thanks a lot. And that's the end of this week's Babbage. Don't forget, you can rate us on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. And if you like our journalism, please take out a subscription at subscription.economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. 